We are reading from the letter of Paul to the Philippian church, and we are starting at chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It's on page 1164, Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Emily. As Emily read that passage, that Paul is recording here a prayer. Prayer is an almost universal practice. For Christians, it's one of our key spiritual disciplines, one of the means by which we partake in God's grace. But even if you don't identify as a Christian, and if you're in that case uh, situation, we're glad you're here this morning. We try to be a place where you can ask questions without being pressured to join up immediately. But if you don't identify as a Christian, I suspect you still might occasionally pray or have questions about prayer. In our passage, Paul tells the Philippians that he prays for them continually, and so his Prayer provides a model for us. He teaches us how to pray. You see, he begins with joyous thanksgiving, and then he expresses his intimate feelings before offering requests for the Philippian church. We can try to condense the richness of into three guidelines. Pray with confident thanksgiving. Pray with a heartfelt Christ-like mindset. And pray for spiritual life. The first guideline, then, is pray with confident thanksgiving. Pray with confident thanksgiving. Uh, growing up in my family, we really only used the phone to get business done. So you call someone, you get your business done, you hang up, a 30-second phone call is a phone call. Uh, under that, even better. But I've learned over the years that although it's very efficient and the superior way, many people find this to be somewhat rude or off-putting. So I've worked at trying to ask people how they're doing when I call them. Uh, try to uh, uh, you know, be friendly before getting down to business and getting off the phone. Well, if you've been subject to one of these attempts, I do apologize. I know I'm bad at phone and I'm working on it, but uh, uh, sometimes when we pray, Thanksgiving's a bit like that, isn't it? That we need to do a little bit of pleasantry before we get down to business with God. Thank you, God, for this day, for this food. Now, here's my to-do list, uh, urgent items at the top, and if you could get down to these other ones at the bottom, that would be great. That's kind of how Thanksgiving functions in our prayers. But this certainly is not Paul's practice, is it? He begins with real, 
genuine, exuberant, contagious thanksgiving. And Paul says this is his regular pattern. Do you see in verses 3 and 4? Four times he repeats the Greek word all. In English, it doesn't translate as all every time. But I thank God in all my remembrance, always in every prayer for you all. This is what I do. I give thanksgiving. I regularly, consistently remember you in my prayers, and I call you to mind. I reflect on you, and when I do so, I give thanks with joy. Friends, I wonder, is this what your prayers look like? Are they mostly thanksgiving? And when you are thankful, is it for the church and for everyone in the church? Do you pray for the church at all? Well, if you want, this afternoon you could drive down the guide to Home Goods and buy all sorts of signs that say things like, so thankful, give thanks, hashtag thankfulness, whatever you want for your home decor. The American Heart Association tells us being thankful can lower your blood pressure and increase your immune response. So be thankful. But to who? And for what? Prayer and gratitude shouldn't just be launched out into the universe like some space probe beyond the scope of our solar system. There is someone to be thankful to, to pray to. And so true prayer is directed to a personal God in the context of a personal relationship. Do you see Paul offers no aimless generic thankfulness sent out into the ether? He says, I thank my God for you all. He's alluding there back to one of God's key promises to Israel in the Old Testament. God regularly says to Israel, I will take you to be my people, and I shall be your God. Paul prays from the context of that relationship. He says, I'm praying to my God, to whom I belong. Well, in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives us two reasons for his confidence in thanksgiving, his confident thanksgiving. First, in verse 5, Paul says that he is thankful because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, partnerships refer to things like unions, guilds, business ventures. Law firms today still have partners. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about here. In the ancient world, partnerships shared financial obligations and labor, but also the reward, the benefits from business ventures. So Paul's saying, I'm thankful to you Philippians because you've joined in a guild devoted to the gospel. You've joined up a union of the gospel. They're bound together like members of a guild, but bound in and for the good news. In the history of modern missions, there's been a number of mission societies and fellowships formed as these sorts of gospel partnerships to send out the good news. Groups like the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, the China Inland Mission, the African Inland Mission, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Of course, there's lots of reasons why these mission organizations get developed, but one reason for parachurch organizations and the reason they form is because churches lose sight of the original vision of the church, that every member of the church is meant to be a member of a gospel partnership where we share the financial obligations, the labor, and also the benefits of gospel ventures. Well, the Philippians have wholeheartedly entered into a partnership like this with Paul, and that's his first reason for confident thanksgiving. And then in verse 6, his second reason is grounded in a theological reality, and this is probably one of the most 
well-known verses in the whole letter. Paul writes, I'm convinced, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. There's at least three truths tightly packed into this little verse. First, Paul tells us being united to Christ is God's work, not ours. This is the good work that God begins. In the book of Acts, when Paul first comes to Philippi, he goes and he sits by a riverside gate and he chats with some women. And we read in Acts, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia is the first convert in Philippi, indeed in all of Europe. And we're told she responds to hearing about Jesus because God began a work within her. God opens her heart. And then you see immediately she wants to be part of the mission. She wants to sign up as a gospel partner. Second, this verse, verse 6, tells us that believing in Jesus is the beginning, not the end of a process. This is the beginning of a lifelong work that's only finished on the day when we see Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ. The Christian's life is a continual process of being shaped by God. It's like an endless renovation project that begins when, with Christ's purchase of us and ends only on the last day. And so Christians should not become more self-righteous over time, although I'm afraid sometimes they do, but rather we should become more aware of where we need work, more aware of our sin. So Paul refers to himself as the foremost sinner in 1 Timothy 1. He's keenly aware of his own sin and his own need for God's grace. So Christians should have a little warning sign next to them, works in progress, not yet finished. Third, although this process lasts a lifetime, we can be confident that God will indeed finish this work. I love the intricate detail of a, like a model ship or a model plane that's put together and you see it all finished and it looks great. But every time in my life I've ever tried to build a model myself, I end up snapping vital pieces on accident, uh, getting globs of glue all over things, the decals are on upside down, uh, the paint is not working like it should, and eventually I give up. Okay, But God is not like that. He finishes what he starts. Indeed, what Paul's telling us here is God is so delighted in his son, Jesus Christ, that he decided to make a whole bunch of models of Christ. That's what a Christian's meant to be, a model of Jesus. God loves Jesus so much that he works to make us reflect Jesus. And the truth is, we're broken and messed up in all sorts of ways right out of the box. And yet, God does not give up. He finishes what he starts. That's the assurance here in verse 6. Indeed, that God finishes what he starts is the big picture of the whole Bible. God made a good world to be filled with people made in his image. But by our sin, we turn away from God, we rebel against his authority, and it leads to all sorts of brokenness in the world. But God finishes what he starts, even if it means, as Philippians 2 is going to tell us, sending his own son into the world as a servant who dies on the cross so that when he's exalted, every buddy, the world over, will do what they were meant to do. That is glorify God the Father. God finishes what he starts. 
That's true of the world as a whole. That's true in our own lives. But this raises a question about prayer. If we can be so confident that God will complete the work he has begun, why should we even bother praying? What's the point of it? Well, prayer is not fundamentally about getting God to do something that he wouldn't otherwise. Rather, prayer is fundamentally about having a real relationship with God, participating in the work he's already doing. God uses our prayers as part of his work, a bit like a parent has a young child help them prepare dinner. It's not to get dinner made faster. It slows the process down, but it helps the children play a role, have something to do. As much as anything else, the point of prayer is the relationship with God, and that means that through prayer we're getting in tune with God's own attitudes and plans for the world. And this brings us to the second guideline we see in this passage. Sorry, kids, I know this is a bit of a mouthful. Get ready to write it down. Uh, you guys can scold me later for having bad points. But here's the second guideline. Pray with a heartfelt, Christ-like mindset. Pray with a heartfelt, Christ-like mindset. You can see what I mean in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. That word translated feel here is actually one of the key words in the letter. In 2.2 and 2.5, it's translated as mind. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. Have this mind among yourselves. In 4.5, it's translated as reasonableness, and in 3, as thinking. And the idea really includes all these together, thinking, feeling, acting. So maybe something like our word mindset captures this. Paul says to the Philippian church, you know, this is a bit gushy, me being so thankful for you. And yet, because I know your identity in Christ and what God's doing in you, it's the right sort of mindset to have. In fact, it would be wrong not to have this mindset. Indeed, Paul doesn't end here. He says, I hold you in my heart. It's not just an intellectual judgment, but it's a heartfelt concern for the Philippians. He says, I yearn for you. I'm homesick for you. I wonder, is this how we feel when we've been away from church? Do we, do we feel homesick to be part of church, to be part of this gospel partnership? Well, Paul says this mindset and longing for the Philippians is really with the affections of Jesus. That is to say, Christ himself loves and longs for the church. And Paul is learning to see the church the way that Jesus sees them. He's learning to share in Jesus' own affections. Especially when we're dealing with frustrating or difficult people, we should pray something like this. God, help me to see this person the way you see them. Help me to see the work you're doing in their lives and the role I play in that. There's other people we can treat almost as non-persons. Uh, the drive-through fast food restaurant employee, the airline attendant. And yet again, all people that we interact with, we should be praying, Jesus, give me your affections for this person. Especially those on the margins of society, perhaps those with addictions or disabilities that we'd rather not interact with. We should pray, Jesus, help me to love this person like you love them, so we can share in Christ's affections. In verse 7, again, Paul returns to the reason for this thankful mindset, for his affections. He says the Philippians are all partakers, all partners, in Paul's imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In ancient prisons, uh, the prison didn't provide food or clothing or blankets for the people who were imprisoned. 
They were dependent either on their own means or the generosity of their friends and family. And Paul is writing this letter from prison to the Philippian church, and in part, as we'll see later in the letter, it's to thank them for giving him a gift of money to provide for his needs. But as we've seen from 1 Corinthians, Paul knows that the, the, the church in Philippi actually is not that the exact language there, he says, they actually have extreme poverty, and yet nevertheless give to Paul out of that extreme poverty. So, so putting this together, uh, uh, Paul's saying, thank you for participating in this, for helping me. And yet the Philippians don't simply write a check and call it good. Paul says they are also partners in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So we'll see next week Paul's own life uh, as a prisoner has furthered his witness to the good news about Jesus. And all Christians, their lives should reflect that good news and point to it. And yet Paul says there's also a need for a verbal defense and confirmation of the gospel, to answer questions and objections, and to confirm the good news. So Paul shows us that prayer should begin with gratitude for what God's doing, and it's about getting in tune with God's own feelings, mindset, attitude. It's sharing in this, uh, praying with a uh, Christ-like, heartfelt attitude. Calvin summarizes Paul's prayer in this passage as a whole like this. Joy for the past, prayer for the future. Joy for the past, prayer for the future. And finally, in verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us, this is what I pray for you. These are my actual petitions, what I'm asking for. And it provides us with a third guideline here in this passage. Pray for spiritual life. Pray for spiritual life. Consider again this context. Paul's in prison. He knows he might be executed. The Philippian church is in extreme poverty and nevertheless is giving some of what they have to support Paul. There are all sorts of physical and material needs. And yet, what does Paul pray for in verse 9? For love. His key petition is for the Philippians' spiritual life. Indeed, Paul has about 30 prayers in the New Testament, and in every one, the prayer focuses not on physical material needs, but on the spiritual life of those who he prays for. Paul's prayer is that the Philippians would abound in love more and more. Sometimes we think of ourselves a bit like this glass. Uh, We only have so much capacity for love, and once it's drank, at the end of the day, it's done. And yet Paul's picture here, I I meant to bring a soda can and I didn't, and it's probably good because it might make a mess, but Paul's picture of love here is, is shaking up a soda can, and then you pop it open and it bubbles over. That's what Paul's saying, is love abounding more and more, bubbling over. We're to be filled with love and then to love others. Jesus summarizes God's law, how God wants his people to live, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what Paul is praying for the Philippians, that indeed they would abound in bubbling up, overflowing love. So Paul's key petition is that the Philippians would grow in love for God, for Christ, for others. But then you see there's a series of results there. That this love would lead to knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's a little bit of an odd combination of thoughts there, isn't it? Uh, I'm so thankful for you. I pray that you'll grow in love so that you'll make better decisions. I probably wouldn't write that in your Valentine's card next year, man. Uh, You know, I love you and I, I hope that you learn to make better decisions. Uh, And yet, there is sense to what he's saying here if we unpack it. When we love something, we learn more about it. We grow in our knowledge and our insight 
into what we love. I'm not a car guy. I don't love cars. I drive them because I have to. I can do basic maintenance, but that's about it. But if you're a car guy and you love cars, what do you do? You learn all the details about them. You learn all the ins and outs of various cars that you don't even own. You're able to perceive the difference between cars that look basically the same to me. Because, you're growing, or because of your love, you grow in knowledge. And the same is true if you love football, you learn statistics, you learn plays, you can tell the difference between different teams and their strategies. Uh, it, it goes all over. Uh, if you love wine, if you love jazz music, if you love quilting. I knew a woman who had, I think, 40 sewing machines. Apparently that's something you can love and learn the distinctions between. Okay, whatever it is, when you love it, you learn about it and you start to notice these subtle distinctions. So what Paul's saying is as we grow in love for God and our neighbors, we need to learn more about God and our neighbors and learn more about how to love them. And this leads to approving what is excellent. This is about moral sensibility, but it's not telling right from wrong. That's kind of square one. But it's about telling what's better from what's good, about what's excellent from what's just okay, the superior from the merely permissible. Let me illustrate with a little bit of an extended example. Okay, basic question, should I educate my children? Answer, yes. It's an obligation as a parent to educate your children so that they're prepared to live as independent as But then we have to start asking questions. In public school, Christian school, homeschool, should I encourage them to go to college or trade school or neither? None of those options are wrong. Uh, they're all fine options. But since we love our children, we want to figure out what's best for them. And to determine what's best for them in their education, we need to think about a variety of things. Uh, what are my own children's particular needs and abilities? What do my finances allow for? What does my time schedule allow for? What is our own capacity as parents? And I, I, I'm sure you see these are not simply right and wrong answers. It's not a flow chart that you get down to, okay, here. It takes time and prayer to discern and what's best for one family or even for one child in your family is not necessarily what's best for the family next to you or even another one of your children. This is what Paul's praying for, is that we would grow in our love and so grow in knowledge and discernment and so be able to approve what's excellent, figuring out what's best, not simply what's good. Should I read the Bible? Yes. That's a right-wrong thing. How many chapters a day? Well, that depends. In love, knowledge, and discernment, taking into account your own situation, you need to figure out and approve what's excellent for you. Should you be involved in the life of the church? Yes. In what particular capacity? Well, that depends. You need to approve what's excellent for you. Uh, should, I, should you love your neighbor? Yes. What does that look like? I think you see where I'm going with this, right? That it, it, it depends on your particular situation. When we love someone, our question is not what's the bare minimum I can do to show that person I love them. Okay, it's my anniversary, what gift do I need to get? Like what, how many dollars do I need to spend, that's it? Okay, that's uh, sufficient to show my love. That's not how a loving person acts. When you love someone, you want to find the best way, the most excellent way to show that love. That's what Paul's saying, growing in spiritual life looks like. It's a shift from the bare minimum, how many Sundays a week do I need to attend, to seeking excellence. What's, what's excellent? What's best for me and for my family? What's the end result? Verses 10 and 11 paint a picture for us. Verse 6 has already said, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, is when God's work will be complete. And now he shows what that looks like. On the day of Jesus Christ, we'll stand before him pure and blameless. 
Pure means our internal life. There's no mixture. There's nothing bad in there any longer. Blameless. Our external actions can't be faulted. It's like we're batting a thousand. We've, we've got it figured out. That's the final goal. But this isn't just holiness by negation, like they'll quit doing all the bad things, simply refraining from evil. The goal is described as being filled with the fruit of righteousness. But of course, an apple tree doesn't produce apples for its own good, right? A peach tree doesn't eat its own peaches. The fruit gets eaten by others. It goes over. And so, so it is with the fruit of righteousness. It's fruit that are righteous, that are good, and yet benefit others. This sort of loving life Paul prays for produces these righteous fruit, and that's a common metaphor that Paul uses in his letters. In Galatians 5, he even lists these fruit. Many of you will know this passage, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces in Christians' lives our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, oh, goodness, faithfulness. I knew I was going to forget one if I didn't look. Uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here in Philippians, Paul's saying that these fruit grow in our lives through Jesus Christ. As we're united to Jesus, as we submit to him, communing regularly with him in prayer, these fruit grow in our lives. So Paul's prayer began with thankfulness and joy for what God has already been doing, and he sought to align himself with God's own priorities and mindset and affections. And then the goal of Paul's prayer is this, the glory and praise of God. It begins with thankfulness to God. It ends with glory for God. As God's work progresses within us, it brings glory and praise to God. As we live more and more like little models of Jesus, we bring glory and praise to God. As we learn to approve what is excellent, we bring glory and praise to God. And on the day when God's work is completed and we stand before Christ, pure and blameless, filled with fruit of righteousness, we will bring glory and praise to God. So that's how Paul teaches us to pray. Pray in thankfulness sharing Christ's own affections, and praying for spiritual vitality, spiritual life that overflows to the good of others. Join me now in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this church that you have set apart for your own glory and your own purposes. I thank you, Lord, that you have began a good work in the members of this congregation and those who are here today. I ask that you would continue that work slowly over time, shaping them to be more like models of Christ. Some here today, perhaps, Lord, this good work has not even been begun yet. They don't have faith in Christ. Yet I ask that you would begin this work as you did in Lydia. Open hearts so that we can hear you, hear your word and respond to it. Lord, may we, as we grow, share your affections for others. May we love others the way you love them. And may we consistently pray for the abounding love in our own lives and the lives of others. We offer all these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.